You're like having this kind of, uh, what part of this movie is? Yeah, man. <laughs> I thought it was like like an epic masturbation theme song. Like you just hear this like, <laughs> rhythmic slapping in the background with this orchestra over the top of it. I was like, what, what scene is like? What You're are like, you wait a minute. Here? I don't remember a masturbation scene. I know. Well, I thought, I remember it was something close to that. <laughs> but, um,. Yeah, no, I was just like, what, what is this scene? And then eventually it's uh, Kurt Russell vomiting, That's right? right? Yeah. It's the, uh, okay. when they get poisoned by the coffee. What a selection, in such a dialogue-heavy film, that is an odd selection for intro. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I was probably a little bit lazy. I just like saw, saw the first <laughs> scene that, that I typed into YouTube and I was like, yeah, this scene seems great. <laughs> I was actually having yeah, some trouble right, okay. with my, um, I don't know if it was my browser or... Um, my internet or maybe it was a little bit of both but things were just freezing all over the, all over the show all over my pc Man. yeah i couldn't even open up my audio editing software your pc sucks right my what doesn't your pc suck no <laughs> did i say that one time what's the graphics card on that bad boy? <laughs> i got a 1080p yeah, that sucks okay nah, it does nah. 1080p <laughs> is great it's good what do you mean in like 2014 yeah gtx 1080 it's still really, really good, and it's perfect for gaming. Yeah. <laughs> From I mean, the games you play, yeah, I think so. Because like they, they put it on low for like uh, competitive purposes, right? Like that's like a thing. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Like they have yeah, to well, be relatively that, runnable um, on like on like a peanut setup, you know, just so um, there's a wide array of people that can compete in the game. There's an element of like you you even if your computer is like really powerful, you want to put it on low because then like some of the uh, like the flashbanging or smoke grenade stuff isn't as quite well animated or something like that. I feel like I've heard this concept. Yeah, I mean there are people that customize settings so they can like they, yeah. they can put certain settings on low so then they can actually effectively play the game better and they can sacrifice certain visuals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. That is some anyway. deep, nerdy, gamey stuff. Um, but we are here with the Quentin Tarantino review and recap of The Hateful Eight. We are back with the Legacy series. We are coming into the eighth 
Tarantino movie. When this came up on the credits, I was like, really? Is it a number eight? And I was like, yeah, true. It is a number eight. Makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. We'll go, do we have two? Wait, no, no, no. Hold on. Oh, no. He's doing 10, and the last one's like, he's still making it, right? Oh, really? I always thought that Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood was his 10th. I think that's his ninth. Ah, well, I guess um, clearly it's his ninth because that's the last film that we're reviewing. <laughs> Recap it. Yeah, yeah. So like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Last film. Oh, Let's I think a what like there what might have been some time. The movie critic. Okay, there might there might have been some time where. Wait, you're saying that that's his next film? Yeah, it's titled The Movie Critic, oh. and it's his tenth and final final oh, film. Wow, The Movie Critic. That sounds interesting. I really hope it's the same guy. Have you ever seen a, is it called The Critic? I don't know. Like it's a cartoon from um, Jay Sherman. He was a movie critic and it's like a cartoon about his life. And he's just like, it's kind of like a, I don't know, like like a cartoon phrase. I wonder if it's, um, um, no, I haven't seen that. Sorry. (laughs) But, um, well, I've never even heard of that, but I wonder if it's going to be a, a super meta script you know he, he loves to tell like have a bit of meta scripting in some of his films yeah, um, yeah i see that i wonder yeah. if he's gonna make this super meta and really shit on uh death proof <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you like would he use his last movie just to shit on a different movie that he made i reckon for someone like tarantino um he might use an opportunity to really uh with a fine comb you know, um, mm-hmm. pick apart his own films in the movie critic and turn it into a film, and that'll be it. Just become like this thing that uh, worships itself. Well, no, no, no. Like, um, be heavily critical. You know, be brutally honest about his films. But that is kind of worshiping himself, right? Like, th- just the fact that he's not actually worshiping it doesn't mean the fact that like he's created a, a piece of art whose sole purpose is to look at his other pieces of art. <laughs> I suppose so. Worshiping kind of implies yeah. that it's good, though. It's positive, isn't it? Yeah, no, but I just think the existence of something to, for that purpose is kind of worshipping, regardless of whether it's like actually crappy. Maybe, or maybe indulgent is the word to use. Oh yeah, that's fair. yeah, indulging yeah. in as a material, um, kind of like reverse psychology, right? Um, you know, pit the story that he's going to be heavily critical about his films, and he does, but then in, in turn, it just makes a lot of money because he's criticizing his own films. <laughs> Yeah, and like you probably have some sort of element of like, oh no, he's criticizing it, but that shows the greatness of it, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, I'm sure he'll be biased about like the things that he really loves about it for sure. Um, yeah, so today we're going to be reviewing and recapping the Hateful Eight, the eighth film in Tarantino's film Armada, um, written and directed by Tarantino. This movie came out in 2015 on Christmas Day as well, the same as uh, oh, nice. Django Unchained, which was three years prior to this. Uh, three years, two years, three years. I don't even remember. I think it was 2012 when Django came out. Yeah. Anyway. All the same. Seems just like, yeah, you know what? (laughs) It seems all the same. (laughs) Um, With a runtime of two hours and 48 minutes, it's one minute shy of Django Unchained. Um, And also with a budget, a very small but humble budget of $44 million. Um, And it had a massive, uh, again, net positive. Uh, financial net, net positive for Tarantino and made a hundred and or just over 155 million at the box office. Are you surprised by that? How much it uh, made? No, not really. Hmm. 
I think after Inglorious and and uh, Django, it would be pretty hard for the next movie to fail, regardless of his. Quality. He's on a roll, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's actually quite surprising. Like until I did this series, I think I mentioned this in one of the previous um, podcasts. Like I didn't realize how magical that run of two movies were mm. in the grand scheme of his That's career. Right, yeah. If you talk yeah. to most people that are familiar with the, with the name Quentin Tarantino, even if they're not film people, right? The first two films I'll probably always mention is Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained. It's always out of those two. Oh, really? You wouldn't say Pulp Fiction? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, I would have said Pulp Fiction is like number one, mm. if anything. Like he's most well known for that. But like, I kind of had in my mind, it was like, oh, Pulp Fiction and then straight to Inglorious and then straight to, you know mm. what I mean? Like, it's just like hit after hit after yeah. hit. I didn't realize he had this sort of middle period, which I think people still love that middle period, but like the quality wasn't quite. Pulp Fiction is a weird one for the sort of non uh, movie goer type person or the average movie person, right? Or the movie watcher. Yeah. Um, Pulp Fiction is a movie that people would regard as like this cult classic amongst film people, but don't necessarily know mm. who directed it. Um, yeah, really? I've spoken, I've spoken oh. to a lot of people that have gone, yeah, Pulp Fiction, like all the hardcore film people love it, eh? And then I would ask them, like, yeah, it's, I would not ask them, but I would mention, yeah, it's directed by Tarantino, and they would probably say, like, oh, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't even know who he is. Yeah, no, okay, I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's Just talk a... to, like, the next person that has heard of Pulp Fiction that's not entirely a film person um, and, and ask them. Do you have you heard, like who directed Pulp Fiction? Should I hit up like soccer this week and just be like, yeah. hey, get like, get a consensus, get oh, a consensus, I want yeah. a consensus. see who knows yeah. or who has heard of Tarantino? Not that into it, so yeah, I'm curious yeah. about that. Um, this movie stars Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, Demian. Deme- Deme- <laughs> Is that the accent? Demian. Yeah, maybe Demian Bitcher. Don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah. I don't actually pronounce as uh, as Demian. No, Demian. Yeah, Demian. Demian. All right. Uh, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, and many other actors. Uh, the critics. Is it actually like many others? Like it's not that big a cast, I thought. Uh like Sweet Dave. Yeah, there's a couple. The people. The people. Yeah, the shop, there's, yeah, there's quite a few other people in there <laughs> that um, that don't get mentioned. Um, yeah, apologies, yeah. The critic consensus from, according to Rotten Tomatoes, the hateful eight offers another well-aimed round from Quentin Tarantino's signature blend of action, humor, and over-the-top violence, all while demonstrating an even stronger grip on his filmmaking crafts. Now, the hateful eight, the eighth film in Tarantino's um, film slate. What did you think? Let's just start right off, like right off the bat. What did you think of this film? Yeah, I mean, okay, so, like, I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would, because I've never seen this before. This is the first time I've seen it, and everyone was talking to me about how much they didn't like this movie, and I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would, because, like, one thing, watching all of Tarantino up till now, I've kind of realized that sometimes these movies are just kind of uh, their own little vehicle, right? Like, you're not trying to get this, like, sort of deep movement of like, oh, it's a soul-searching stuff, or you're not meant to try and like sort of have this really emotional journey. Sometimes you're just kind of there to have fun. And I feel like having that knowledge coming into this made it easier to understand and accept. Um, Two, it felt a lot like one of my favorite films from him, Reservoir Dogs. Like it's this really personal story of people in a room 
who don't know if they can trust each other or not, and you're just kind of trying to figure it out. It kind of gave me Glass Onion vibes, which I liked. That's only um, because Tim Roth and Michael Madsen's in this, right? <laughs> you're like, oh! Is Michael Madsen in Glass Onion? No, 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 in uh, Hateful Eight. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like, wait, wait, so, so you're saying the Reservoir yeah, Dogs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of, but just, no, just the concept of there's, like, a bit of a heist-ish and like just people are in a room they can't trust. I think, I, I think it's a nice little. Uh, I think it's a nice little like um, nostalgia or nostalgic trip. You know, you kind of like, oh, look at that, bringing yeah. the Reservoir Dogs uh, cast back. You can't like, yeah. In the house, I didn't even realize that till now that, that you mentioned it. Like, it's the same premise and largely the same cast. Well, not largely. It's like two out of seven or whatever. But yeah, so I I think it threw back to things that I liked. It reminded me of Glass Onion. I like, um, and I also like the fact that like. So he's recently been doing a lot of more linear storytelling, and this is kind of the time he goes back into non-linear. He sort of has like a times, uh, he goes back into the past in the middle of it with a bit of narration. I appreciated that because I wouldn't have liked it if it's just pure suspense all the way through. Halfway through, he explains sort of the backstory of it all. I really like liked that choice that he made. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like the setting's really cool. The way people moved, like, it felt really heavy. It felt very authentic. I quite liked that. And, um, yeah, performances, they're great. Things I didn't like is that the movie actually feels really long. Like, it feels it's full two hours 48. Like, considering the fact that not a lot happens, it probably doesn't need to be this long. Um, And, yeah, it does get a bit boring sometimes. Like, they spend a lot of time introducing everyone and... I'm personally a kind of guy that likes that. Like, I enjoy long characterization where you really get to know people. So I don't see it as too much of a negative, but I can see how someone else would really dislike that. So, yeah. Kind of my thoughts. I'm, I'm actually very similar, if not identical to you. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I I, I mentioned that the first, you were yeah, the first time this. I saw this in the cinema, I was like, I hated it. I really hated it. Yeah. And you could probably put it down to just like not being as mature of like a viewer as I was like back then, 2015, when I watched the film. But also I would say, and you brought up this, this is a really good point you brought up, is that every time I watch a Tarantino film, if there's anything that I learned about reviewing and recapping all of his movies, the biggest lesson I take away from this is that I have to reset my expectations on a Tarantino film almost right mm. in order for me to get into what his mind uh like what he's thinking the narrative is going to be and how he wants to present this film um and it, it's it's kind of a misnomer almost like you always think that this is this is probably a standard that we should have going into any film <laughs> just reset our expectations and just uh be yeah. ready to be surprised and take in whatever the director and the writers are trying to tell us right and so maybe I was like that, like with this film, you know, I had these great expectations considering that I really enjoyed um, Inglourious Bastards, right? Like I, I was going into this yeah. thinking, man, this guy's the director of Inglourious Bastards. What could I not enjoy about this movie? Um, yeah, right. And yeah, like getting into back then, I just, I just really hated it. And I was bored out of my brains. It is glow. It, do, it <laughs> does glow. And I, th- and I still think it does glow now, even though I watched it this afternoon. Like, it does gloat. But, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I enjoyed a lot of it. Um, and I really, like, the, the downtimes 
where it is boring. Like it's pretty low. And I'm like, I, I, yeah. I was tempted to just fast forward it. <laughs> yeah, right. But I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to fast forward this. I'm just going to try. You're going to get through yeah, this. Persevere. I think the, the, the moment that yeah. I started to enjoy this film was probably at the midpoint. Um, when the, when the time, time well, yeah, when it goes back in time. Yeah, when it, when it tells yeah. the backstory, I think that's where it started to build momentum. That's after Samuel L. Jackson gets shot, right? Um, I think it is. Yeah. Because a lot happens. And, and to the listener, this is really full on spoilers. We always fail at telling oh, yeah, telling everybody that this is all spoilers. But um, sorry, yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's when the first shootout happens, and then it does, yeah. um, it does like a time skip. Go back, it, it goes back into the past. Yeah, going back to your point about like Quentin Tarantino, I think it's kind of interesting. Where like you know when you watch films. Uh, in any sort of half serious way, like you kind of get used to the the Oscar method of judging a film, where it's like these characters need to have an arc and they need to have this like really emotional story that you follow them through. Then you get to the end, and you know whatever happens happens, right? And it's like this really powerful thing. But Tarantino doesn't really subscribe to that with any of his films. Like, yeah, he goes against characters. The might like die. he's very unconventional. Yeah, he just. He- you might just have someone just die randomly. Uh, like you know, you might get to know someone and really like them. They just die, or like someone just kind of fades out or this like some person has like just a bunch of conversations that are silly and don't mean mm. anything and then they just disappear yeah. like and the, and the thing is yeah, like, like had, Taran- it's not like tarantino doesn't um it's not like he's trying to go around the bush about the way he does his films like he's pretty deliberate in how he yeah. does his films like you look at the way he sets up every introduction to his film it's very unconventional mm. if anything it's yeah. it's um it's the way movies were presented from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s like um yeah he already preps you for that and so you should all automatically think that this is going to be a very different film and should reset your expectations um it's funny like yeah. i could see myself if i hadn't done this whole series i would have i actually would have hated this movie i can imagine <laughs> i think it i think it does help it. having to yeah. watch tarantino films back to back um so you can really yeah. get to grips with his style of filmmaking um yeah I, I i think this is when i started to enjoy the film was halfway through um yeah at the midpoint onwards like the characters get more interesting um you start to realize that these characters are quite vastly different from each other and i think that's the point of this film is bringing eight random people that are have so much contrast that um there's enough meat and potatoes to for you to just kind of chew up a bit throughout the two hours and 48 minutes right um, mm. and, you know the the plot is is as simple um, as many of his films. You know the all of his, especially like his good films, they're they're all super simple plots. But all the characters kind of throw in the complexity or do the the heavy lifting for the com- complex parts. Um, and I think my only gripes with the movie is yes, it, it does get a bit boring and it and it gloats and it drags its feet a bit. Um, but my only other gripes is probably wanting to know more about certain characters, you know, like it would have been cool to have a bit more backstory um, with Kurt Russell's character, perhaps. Um, really? That's interesting. I, I didn't share that. Yeah, yeah I think <laughs> I would have liked to know a little bit more. And and I think he didn't last in the, he didn't last in the film as long as I wanted him to. Um, also didn't share that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Who else? Like uh, Tim Roth. Uh, oh, um, 
actually uh, an actor that I forgot to mention in this because he's not in the film until like later until I think like the midpoint is Channing Tatum. Um, oh yeah, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a cool. I saw him in the credits. I'm like, what the hell's he doing? And then I halfway through, got that he just. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, he I, I think I would have liked to learn more about him and his relationship with his sister. Um, uh, yeah, I think those are those oh, are my only other gripes. Yeah. Um, there are some like pretty throwaway characters, which is kind of deliberate in most of Tarantino films, where you know they're just there. They probably mention like a couple of lines, and then they're just dead. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I guess I probably didn't get a chance to say, as far as like one of my gripes, is the fact that like. For a movie that's so heavy on dialogue, there's no one that's particularly like. Maybe I've I've gotten too spoiled with all of the Christoph Waltz characters that he's had, mm-hmm. but like, there's been no one that's like really quite charming or fun to watch. Like the closest we get is uh, Walton Goggins as Chris yeah. Maddox. He's like the most energetic in the film, but you spend like most of the film hating uh-huh. him. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting, right? But yeah, like I felt like you know it's a lot of dialogue, but everyone's kind of just. The fact that they're mysterious is their character rather than they're actually like sort of engaging yeah, in their own. Yeah, but anyway. for sure. And, and all the dialogue that takes place in this one room, I think for better or for worse, um, it's pretty good considering it's all constra- like confined to this one space. Um, yeah. Like what else do you get the characters to talk about? And I think it's important for him to make these characters have interesting backstories that may or may not be fully fleshed out. Because if 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 yeah. all the characters are pretty one note, it'll be pretty boring dialogue. <laughs> I think. I think they're kind of one note, but in their own way. Like to me, each of these characters by themselves are not interesting. But the fact that like all of the interest comes from how they interact yeah. with each other. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, I think that's the point in, in like yeah. um, every single uh, film that he has, where it's like very rich in its cast, um, mm. and the cast listing might be large as well. You know the the volume of people involved in the film, especially if they're all pretty well known actors. You know, um, he's he's got reputation to do that. Um, he done that with Inglorious Bastards. He did it with Reservoir Dogs. Although there's probably a lot of those actors that weren't well known at the time. Um, but you know, he just throws them into the mix, and they might not have big. <laughs> big roles you know he did that with uh bruce willis and pulp fiction he doesn't have the biggest role um mm. but he manages to get these like super important people to be a part of something i don't know it's like the tarantino charm that he has in hollywood <laughs> i feel like by now though he can get whoever he wants right like people will be jumping to be in a tarantino film. yeah even if it's like one line um yeah yeah and, and then other than that like i i do like the way it's shot um um, I do like the cinematography, and then I found out later that it's shot on seventy mil, and I was like, "No wonder why it looks great." <laughs> um, oh, really? Yeah, 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 it was shot on seventy mil, um, and the pr- the production studio um, it decided to give it the green light to distribute it in seventy mil as well across the globe, um, and it was the first time they had done that since like the early nineties or something, apparently. Oh, damn. Yeah. I, I love that he's got, like, this sort of love for the classic ways of making film. Like, I personally can't appreciate it for what it is, but, like, I do like that he does yeah, that. Yeah, because every single other film that he's shot is always on 36, I think. Um, and I think this is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, he's uh, shot on 70 mil, which is pretty cool. Oh. Um, yeah, and, like, for the most part, like, actually for the entire part, the characters are, are cool. I don't think there's any character that I dislike in this um 
and <laughs> as I was watching, I was like, oh, I wonder what Ter- I wonder what uh, Tony's going to say about um, all sort of like the very flimsy black stuff that happens in this. Like, <laughs> um, oh, I feel like it's you know, uh, there's a lot of like racial, yeah, it's inappropriate, but it's like there's a lot of racial undertones. Not even undertones. There's like undertones and overtones and like mm. and on the tone, if you want to call it that. You know, there are moments where like where you have uh, uh, the black American lady. I can't remember her name, but she, I think she's the first one that gets shot. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like plucking feathers from a chicken, and it's like clearly she's about to make fried oh, chicken. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. you know, it's it's all this type of stuff that's like very kind of. Um, oh, I'll tell you, Samuel Jackson gets the brunt of all of the negative. He like, does, yeah. yeah. You know, she gets shot, yeah. right? He does. <laughs> But yeah. Um, yeah. So I thought that was this was interesting, and it was definitely not as bad as I thought it was. Yeah, you're the guy who I think made me think I was going to hate it the most. <laughs> I think I prepped us for having it the most. Yeah, you, you prepped us for like a really bad movie, and like, like, yeah, like, don't get me wrong, it wasn't the best, but um, I enjoyed yeah. it. I mean, review over, review it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Thank you very much for coming. Um, shall we get into the plot? Let's do it. So we begin with chapter one, very similar to uh, Glorious Bastards, I guess. Their own chapters. What's the other movie from Tarantino where he does it in chapters? Uh, wait, he Kill did Bill, right? Kill Bill, yeah. Didn't wait? Didn't he do and... Django in chapters? <laughs> no, wait, Maybe? I can't remember. No, he might have actually. I think yeah. so. He loves a bit of a chapter. I'm having trouble remembering it. Anyway, nonetheless, chapter one. Um, this is called Last Stage to Red Rock. Uh, sometime after the Civil War, bounty hunter Mar- Major Marquis. Mar- did they pronounce it as Marquis? I can't they actually remember. call it Marquis, but Marquis. I always found that weird. Yeah. yeah. I was like, maybe, I want to call it Marquis. Maybe that was like a piss take on him, on his behalf. No, I feel like it's one of those things where like, you know how... You know, back in that day, there's probably a lot of French stuff, but people don't know French, right? Like, you know how in the film... They talk about uh, French. Channing Tatum talks yeah. French, and they're like, whoa, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. That's actually a funny part of the film, too. And I, and I was sort of thinking... Yeah. Uh, I mean, no future spoilers, but I was sort of thinking, oh, I, I'd imagine that's how they would have uh, reacted back then when they discover a different language. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people <laughs> do that even now in a way, right? Like, Not not exciting. in that kind of way. Like, oh, my God, like, like, like as if they've found like an alien or something. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty quirky. Anyway, um, Bounty Hunter Major Marquis Warren transporting the bodies of three outlaws to the town of Red Rock. Hitches a ride on a stagecoach driven by a man named Obi. Inside is a bounty hunter, John the Hangman Ruth, which is uh, Kurt Russell, who was escorting uh, fugitive Daisy Domagu. Domagu? Domagi? Domergy? It's like they call it Domagoo, and I always found that weird too. But Domagoo, yeah. yeah. See, maybe it is a piss take. Maybe it's a troll, like a complete troll. Yeah, yeah potentially. Because like it doesn't spell. Because I had I had subtitles on, so I see it. I'm like, it's not spelled Domagoo. <laughs> but you know, uh, To Red Rock, handcuffed to him. Ruth keeps his bounties alive so he can watch them hang. Um, Warren shows Ruth a letter he claims is from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, when Domagu spits on it, Warren punches her, 
and she and Ruth fall out of the stagecoach. What did you think yeah. of this uh, opening chapter one? It's long. It's a long starting chapter. Like, like uh, that's, a, that's I, a pretty short description for such a long chapter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I mean, like the thing that sucks is that, like, yeah, everything is really kind of captured in here. I think there's like a lot of character building. Like, you know a lot about John Ruth from here. You learn a lot about like Marquise Warren, and like it kind of because these two characters. I mean, spoilers. We can spoil, right? We can spoil. Yeah, yeah, spoil. Like, I think these two are kind of like the uh, moral compass of the film in a way. And so, because they're like, they're kind of the good guys and they never d- deviate from that. Like, good <laughs> guys. I was going to say, um, I mean, uh, these guys are far from being good, but I think I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're kind of the protagonists. Um, hmm. uh, uh, would you say they're not good? Like, I don't know. I feel like everybody good. in this, I, I, th- I feel like everybody is somewhat evil uh, or bad um, it's kind in of it's it's, way, kind, right? it's kind of in the title of the film you know hatefully that's actually true <laughs> mark queens does some pretty terrible he stuff he does some pretty terrible things so does hangman roof like he's <laughs> like you see oh yeah he treats he treats her he so treats badly, her right? really bad dude like she's like a yeah. slave <laughs> but like yeah anyway but like you know they're just they're law guys and they and they Look down on anyone who doesn't follow the law. Uh, the law was pretty messed up back then, uh, like I'd imagine. Yeah, but in any case, I guess like yeah, like I feel like he does a really good job of of characterizing at least these two characters. Uh, Domagi, not so much Domagu. And yeah, it just sort of highlights the plot. I'm not. I'm not sure what else there is to I, say about it. I just love how like right off the bat, like I'm pretty sure it's like only 15 minutes into the film, and we've already decided that Daisy Domagu, the fugitive, the quote unquote mm. fugitive, because we we don't know if this fugitive is actually guilty, right? Like we just assume. Yeah. We just assume, and the film implies that she is guilty. But she, yeah. we decide, or Tarantino decides that she's going to be a punching bag. It's pretty hilarious. Like she's pretty, she's pretty beat up in the beginning. Like before anything starts, oh, it's progressively worse. Yeah, and she just gets worse <laughs> throughout the film. <laughs> you are kind of crazy, you know. I didn't even consider for a second like she might be innocent. Like I'm never. Nah. And they, nah. like, they kind of like say it in the end, sort of. Uh, well, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's clear that she is innocent by the end of the film. Not innocent, but like she hasn't done anything. She's just no. part of a gang, and that gang is um, wanted. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And if you imply that, yeah, like, like it, all, all gangs are are pretty bad and evil in some kind of way. But um, the the interesting thing about her character is that we just we immediately see her as like the villain. She's done something yeah. bad. But even by the end of it, we don't even know if she is actually bad. <laughs> and I think this this dives into the complexity of all the other characters. Is that there's there's a and there's an intention to not expose bigger aspects that most of the audience, especially for myself, have questions on parts of their character. Yeah. But it's not there because he just withdraws that from the film just to keep the thing the tension up. I think. Then again, though, if you think about it, right, like, like. She is part of a gang, and that gang had no issue just murdering like a random like six That's people. True. Yeah, no questions asked. Like, because she's probably pretty guilty, I would assume, yeah. based on that alone. Yeah, yeah. But one thing I did like about this starting scene is like also the Lincoln letter. Like, you you learn a lot about John Ruth because of how much deference he gives to that mm-hmm. letter. Yeah, and it, it, there's like a the, the first scene that's funny is when like you know she um spits on it and. <laughs> 
punched her in the face. <laughs> I thought that was great. It was it was a, it was a nice yeah, it was it was a intro to the three people. She but, gets like, completely like knocked out um, and yeah, thrown yeah. out, and then he gets thrown in the mix because he's handcuffed to her. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it was really funny. Like, I, I, you know, we don't want to see people get get hit, but at the same time, it was really funny. Then, you know, he's like, "Why did you do that?" And he's like, "I gave my letter to you, not her. <laughs> that was yours to hold." Like, that was great. Yeah, yeah. He, did, he actually doesn't even mention anything about her spitting on it, right? Like, I think he just mentions that, like what you just said. Like, yeah, uh, kind, kind of, yeah, yeah. But I guess it's because I mean, yeah. like she spit a spat on it, all right? It's because she spat on it. Yeah. Like, why you showed it to her? I gave it to you. <laughs> And it is funny. They put the they they say, "Oh, is the letter okay?" And it's like, "Oh, the letter's okay." Like, they don't care about her at all. Anyway, sorry, you want to say something? Well, I was just gonna do like a future spoiler about that particular letter because this whole thing, this whole time, we think that is the super authentic, sweet letter like to another Black American, so he can kind of get a check passed, you know, anywhere he goes. But yeah. it turns out to be fake. <laughs> yeah, but it's such a good fake too. <laughs> It's a good fake. I mean, I thought that I, I don't remember I that it, when I first saw saw the film. I, I find it so funny how how sworn they are to truth when there is really no way to validate any of this. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is like, um, yeah. I'm sure at that time that was like how they standardize what well, what is true and what is not true, and yeah. like how else do you track yeah. that stuff, right? Everyone knows each other, but not really. Yeah. It's just funny, and everybody just takes yeah. their word for it. Like that's yeah. how that's how it would have been like back then. We have they had no way of checking or verifying things. You know, you just take their word for it. Um, it's crazy time, man! I can't live in that world. <laughs> Anytime I'm there, man, I gotta look it up. None of us, like twenty first century, were lazy people. Um, yeah, yeah, no. All right, so chapter two is called "Son of a Gun." The stagecoach is approached by former Lost Cause um, militia, <laughs> militia, militiamen. Militiaman? Yeah, Militiaman. Yeah, I've yeah, never heard yeah. of that word before. Uh, Chris oh, Mannix, uh, who claims he is traveling to Red Rock as town's new sheriff. Um, he he persuades Ruth and Warren to let him join them as he as he will be the one paying their bounties. Ruth gives Warren back his weapons, and the two agree to protect each other's bounties. Mannix and Warren almost come to blows over their questionable war records. So they have this like conversation right inside the carriage, yeah. and they're talking about like uh, what they've done in the past. Like, um, well, no, it's just like pretty much um, like uh, John Ruth just gives like manic shit about like his dad and and who he was and what he stood for. But then he just yeah. uh, manic just gives a ton of shit to Samuel Jackson's character. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but this is what I find interesting is that like um, these conversations are all to do with. In in some ways, they're they're implying that we need to measure each other's dicks, you know, like to see who's like who's who's qualified for what, or you know, what have you done? And um, I'd imagine that these conversations were like that back in the day. Like, what else are they going to talk about? Especially if they're all like people that have very very strong titles for that time, um, and you know, they they all have suspicion amongst each other. So, um. I find it like kind of fascinating, and at the same time, I find it a little bit boring. And I think this is oh, where. Well, I don't know. I think I think this is where I started to kind of taper off a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be yeah. Tarantino like dialogue stuff, and it's just going to be well, dragged on. It's not really like Tarantino dialogue in the way that, like, you know, okay, what I call Tarantino dialogue is like dialogue that is kind of about nothing, but 
it's fun and gives a little bit of insight into like who the character is. I feel like that's kind of like this. <laughs> no, but it's like it's not. It's just pure character building. It's not that fun. Mm. Like it's like, hey, you did these things, and they're very very like powerful character trait things, right? Mm-hmm. Like you broke out of a prison and then you burnt everyone, and then they were all people on your side, and you also don't really care about that even now. Like it's like. He's fitting in a lot of characterization in a very small amount of time, which is like kind of, it's a lot to take in and it's not that entertaining to do, I don't yeah. think. I, th- I think the thing that you learn about these characters as well is that none of these guys are squeaky clean. And the irony is that mm. they're taking in someone who's bad. <laughs> I do like that, that like every character is like their own brand of terrible person. Like I yeah. did say before, like these people are kind of like the good guys, but yeah, you're right. Like there are definitely no good people in, no, this, in this film. No. No, it's just full of a lot of irony. Um, and one thing that I kind of want to... Oh, I don't know if I want to touch on it now or later. Now, I'll just talk about it now. Like, the thing is, like, Chris Maddox is like... I think Tarantino does a really good job of playing with the audience with regards to, like, the Confederacy and, and <laughs> um, that war. Because, yeah. like, someone like me, I'm going to, by default, hate racists, Right. And Chris Mannix is like a pretty big racist who spends most of the film like saying, you know, a black major, uh, blah, 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 yeah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. Uh, he turns out to be like one of the cooler guys. So, you know, it's just kind of funny how he plays with that. Yeah. There is a little bit of a change in his character towards the end, especially like once that, um, you can call it the climax of the, of the ending. There's a little bit of yeah. a change there. And especially when the negotiation starts, but, um, um, yeah, I don't know. Like uh, these, like all I really learned from many of these characters up until this point of the film is they're all pretty bad and they're all pretty messed up. Um, mm. And I can imagine, like during that time, like pe- people of that caliber are all pretty messed up. Um, and this is where you get the insight to moral ambiguity that's littered throughout the whole film. You know, mm. bad people doing bad shit, but trying to pretend like they're doing something good for society because they literally talk about how, like, you know, this is. This is like a public thing. And it was public, right? Like hanging people was like a public ceremony. Oh, yeah. Like they talk about justice, right? They talk like, about justice. Who, yeah. who does it? What, what's what? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought. Like, what's a defensible act? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's all I really get out of these. Um, chapter three Minnie's Haberdashery. By the way, do they, like, it's it probably passed, passed me, like, but it was bugging me the whole time especially when it got to the end and it never really covered it, or at least I didn't pick up on it. But I'm wondering... You know well, I'm wondering if you picked up on this. What's that? Because all the characters say... Oh, sorry, not all the characters, but the um, the four. What are they called? The the secret four or the whatever. Bad the bad guys. Like the four yeah. guys that are there to save um, the sister. Yeah. They... Or especially Channing Tatum. He mentions that these guys are showing up to Minnie's haberdashery and this is how we're going to take it. It's like, is there any mention of them knowing how or, or like them knowing oh, why they how even... they're going to come? My, I, my, I, this doesn't bother me much at all. I, I assumed that like, like you can't really get to Red Rock in one straight go. Yeah, right. Like there's only one, like because obviously they don't have Google Maps. So there's probably, yeah. they're going to have to stop at this point. But then... It doesn't explain why they stop at that place because they could have, like, th- there's no way they're going to rely on a on a um, a blizzard storm because how would they even know that there's a storm coming? <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't know that the storm coming. So maybe like Minis is like like the place to be. Like, I, it doesn't 
surprise me if there's like not a lot of choice in these kind of places okay so it's it's okay to kind of assume those things but they don't mention it in the film right they don't cover it they don't they don't, they don't say anything they, no, there's, no, no, there's nothing there's nothing that's exposed saying i mean there's nothing in the story that says oh yeah i found out that um john ruth is coming to the many haberdashery at this point no 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 they never say that okay so it it bothered me. I was like, "Wait, but how does he even yeah, know that he's yeah. going to stop at the mini haberdashery?" Anyway, chapter three, Minnie's uh, haberdashery. The group arrives at Minnie's haberdashery, the stagecoach lodge, as a powerful blizzard approaches. Bob, a Mexican, says the owner Minnie is visiting her mother and let him and left him to look after the lodge. The other lodges are Oswaldo Mowbray. Um, who introduces himself as the Red Rock Hangman. John Gage, mm. a quiet cowboy going to stay with his mother, and Sanford Smithers, a former, former Confederate general. Ruth, suspicious, suspicious of the lodges, disarms all but Warren. As the group eats, Minix, oh, sorry, Mannix surmises that Warren's licking letter is a forgery. Warren, in revenge for Smithers' Having executed black Union soldiers at the Battle of, of Baden Rogue, places a gun next to Smithers and taunts him by recounting how he marched Smithers' son naked through the snow for hours, coerced him into fellating him, and killed him. Smithers reaches for the gun and Warren shoots him dead, satisfied that the killing was self-defense. Okay, there's a lot that happens in Chapter 3. Um, yes, I I was pretty entertained by Samuel Jackson's monologue. <laughs> yeah, this one gave me a uh, Pulp Fiction vibe. It did. I know it's it did. Fiction, it did. Like with his I really his monologue that. inside the apartment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like cool. it's just like, I don't know. Not like, as good. Not as good as the Pulp Fiction story. one, but oh, still, of course, still not nearly good. as good. Yeah. But, like when you see what he's doing, you see what he's trying, and like he's just telling this really long story, and then you get like this, uh, you get this visualization of it, which is like a little over the top <laughs> in how funny it is. It's pretty crazy. Like, I was like, man, how did he manage to convince that actor to walk through the snow naked? That stuff's not visual it effects. Like, it is on his front for a long. Oh time. man, like for a long time. I was like, man, <laughs> this guy—he's not hung, but he's clearly not circumcised. <laughs> Oh, see, I didn't, I, didn't get, I didn't see the details. Don't you detail. lie to me. <laughs> not hung. It was pretty. I thought it was doing all right. Was he? Yeah. I have yeah, different standards, I, I, I guess. I'm <laughs> Asian. <laughs> hey, your words, not mine, man. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it is pretty over the top. and like, uh, But that's just Tarantino. He loves to do over the top shit. And like, if he wants to show a naked dude just running through the snow and he's going to pay that guy probably a lot right like i'm pretty sure that guy yeah. would be like yeah whatever i'll do it um <laughs> and the star of this scene is i'm not sure if you're going to pick up on this but the star of the scene is johnson and <laughs> johnson oh damn it i can't remember what he calls johnson and uh i can't remember i can't remember what the other word he's ba- he's talking about his dick Remember, he gives the, his dick like oh, different the names. Dingus. The dingus. Oh, the dingus. Johnson and yeah. Johnson and the dingus. And okay, so I just want to go back a little bit to like sort of when they first show up in this um, haberdashery. Yeah. Like I found that scene 
like that was probably the slowest part for me where you're slowly learning about everyone and everything these little bits of conversation and then you have like this annoying you've got to nail the door shut thing yeah i i don't really get that though like that whole part like why why do they need that Mm. it's annoying i think like you can think about it from a gang point of view like no no we want to make it so that in order to avoid the snow you have to lock yourselves in so that people can't run right i can i piece that together but it just it's annoying to watch as just a viewer yeah because they don't actually explain why the door is broken either i think they you show them in the flashback you show them breaking it i don't think they they broke it no because because i looked out for it because in the flashback they just walked through the door Oh, didn't they break it? No, they just walked through it. Uh, so I don't know like, why it was broken. <laughs> yeah, I, I assumed it was like they did it on purpose so that they could make it easier for them to make it like a safe little room. Yeah, but then it doesn't even end up being yeah, that in. Like, uh, yeah, I guess so. Like, that could be an explanation for it. But there's, it doesn't explain at all. It or well, it's not self-explanatory <laughs> at the very least. Um, yeah. But yeah, but, anyway, yeah. I feel like um, I thought that was a little bit odd, like like when they're shouting. Like, and odd, stuff. but also annoying. Like you got to kick it open, and then but like it, it doesn't add on anything. It just takes time. Um, one thing that I kind of liked was you. You've got like um, Samuel L. Jackson. He's the only one that's, that's ever been to this place before. Mm. So he's mm. like the again. I gave it glass onion kind of uh, vibes. He's the uh, Bond, but in that movie. Yeah, right. He's the Daniel Craig of this film. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess in a way. Yeah. Maybe. He's the one that figures it all out, right? He's the one who actually knows what's going on. But, um, yeah, no, I just found like that starting bit kind of boring, but the, the monologue that he gives is pretty entertaining, pretty fun. Um, when he shoots that old man, I don't know, how did you feel? Like, did, Were you on Samuel L. Jackson's side? Because he's just explained how much of an asshole he is. Ah, uh, this is but, but this is the thing about these characters, right? Is that there's so much moral ambiguity. Everybody's got so much blood on their hands, um, and I think this is where the cleverness of the dialogue, the scripting, yeah. comes in, which fully characterizes all of these characters. You know, it really paints a good picture on all these characters. Um, and yeah. and the, and the thing is, like, yeah, he's 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 exposing how evil that old dude is, like that boomer, whatever his name is. Uh, what's the name? Bob? No, it's not Bob. Bob's Smithers. the Mexican. Smithers. Smithers, Smithers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exposing like all the bad shit that he did. Um, yeah, like he like, killed all these like black. Um, yeah. Prisoners. Pretty like, much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And but then he's also <laughs> describing like the bad shit that he does to his son. Um, yeah. So there, well, there's like the justification. There's there's no moral justification there, um, but he's trying to justify like his uh i guess his next mission to kill smithers <laughs> because he's provoking yeah. him to kill him by telling him about how he killed his son in a really really sort of sadistic not a sadistic but it's it's kind of yeah i guess it's like sexually sadistic you know <laughs> it's um so it's 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 weird and i like it and i think that's why that scene hits better than I guess what it would look like on script. It's honestly probably one of the best scenes in the film, funnily enough. Like I, mm. I didn't want to 
say that like a man for leading another man is the best scene. In the movie, <laughs> like, That's what I said, man. Johnson and, and Dingus is the best of the best characters. It's kind of like up there, right? Like I was very engaged in that scene. Yeah, yeah. I was drawn in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think this is where like the like Tarantino um talent comes out is that when he he's able to do stuff like this you know he did it with pulp fiction and he did it with samuel jackson in this one as well um and it's compelling um and does the other guy deserve it i mean the other guy deserves to be dead just as much as like samuel jackson deserves to be dead as well (laughs) that's what you take away from this because for me like i was still firmly in the oh racism is bad scene so like i didn't like the old guy mm. you know eventually yeah. you start to get to like, like like tarantino starts to play with those assumptions a fair bit throughout this film so i kind of mm. like that yeah yeah um also like you know them knocking down the door like going back to what we're talking about the door it's like i, I thought yeah. it was such a weird choice that he has one person shouting in the background like what you need to do and tim roth is repeating the same thing yeah, yeah. That's a, it's such an like odd choice. Weird, uh, like it, it created this sense of chaos, and I don't know what it was going for with that. I, I, I was I just really confused. I was just I wasn't chaotic for me. I was just confused. I was like, why is there yeah, another like, character shouting yeah, in the background? The yeah, you know I mean? like, and yeah, Tim Roth is just he's repeating, but with like slightly different words. I was like, this is yeah. weird. Why? <laughs> and I didn't even yeah, know who yeah. that was in the beginning. And then I found like you find out a little bit later it was Michael Madsen's character that that was saying it. Yeah, but then when you go through the flashback, you realize like like you know, they're like they're the ones nailing it down, and then they're like, "You got to kick it." Like I, I never really understood the purpose of the door being broken. Yeah, I would love to read about that. The whole thing is a little bit weird. I'm pretty sure some hardcore Tarantino fan out there has got a good theory. Yeah, uh, I need to look this up. Yeah. Oh, can I? Can I actually? There's a Reddit post, right? Okay. Tell me. Uh, Get into the Reddit post. Okay. The whole thing is basically an Ag- Agatha Christie mystery set in the Old West, with Samuel Jackson as the detective. Ah, glass onion vibes, see? <laughs> he puts it all together in his head. The door, the Mexican, the candy in the floorboard, the Confederate general not fitting with the gang, then tests his suspicions in different ways. Making a big fuss about the broken door is a way of hiding a big clue in plain sight. By having everyone preoccupied with the drama and excitement of getting it closed, it kind of slips your mind as to why it's broken. Okay, that was a dumb... I mean, that doesn't really... That doesn't, that doesn't tell us anything. It just it tells us, like, a piece uh, of observation. <laughs> okay, someone just said, the door lock got shot by Bob, the Mexican, during the shootout. Yeah, okay. In the flashback, oh, that guy's at the door. Yeah, the guy the, that gets shot in the knee? The helper. Yeah. Yeah, the, guy, the helper. Yeah. He, it just gets shot accidentally. Ah, there we go. We should have just saw that. Okay, so... I don't remember the door it, getting shot, though. I'd have to go back and watch it. He does shoot the door. I remember he, he does? shoots the door. I, like, I don't think it was obviously like um, the door broke, right. but like he definitely shoots the frame a couple right. of times. Okay, so the door gets damaged through collateral. Okay, so it's just... But then... That, that's dumb, though. You know what I mean? Because it's a made-up story. It doesn't have to get shot. <laughs> yeah. it's. It, I mean, th- this is Tarantino. He makes odd choices in his films, right? Yeah. It's well, like he, I didn't like he, that. He, he made... <laughs> He makes it a point. He makes it a point in this film. He's like, I'm going to have this odd thing. People are probably going to question it, but who cares? I'm just going to put it in there. But, yeah. but like, my, my, uh, <laughs> the thing that I don't like about that part is different to your reasoning. My reasoning is like, why is, why is there another person shouting in the background and he's repeating the same thing? Oh. It's just weird. See, for me, it's like, I just, 
I mean, yeah, that I mean that part that's part of it too, right? It's just it just adds it just adds to the weirdness the, of it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I wonder if like the fi- I wonder if the film editors are like, why are these things in here? Like, I want to yeah. like a film editor would just cut that out, right? Like, really yeah. good film editors would just cut that out. But Tarantino is across every facet of his filmmaking. He'll be micromanaging these people for sure. He'd be like, "Nope, yeah. this is in it. Do not cut it out." I love the I love the broken door thing. They're like, "Why?" And he's like, "I'm good, man." Like- <laughs> yeah, that's just how he is. <laughs> A true master of his creativity. Um, okay, yeah. so chapter four, Domagu's got a secret, and this is a good secret. Well, I thought it was a good secret. Um, while everyone is distracted by Smithers' death, someone seen only by Domagu poisons the brewing coffee. Uh, Ruth and Obi drink the coffee, then vomit blood and collapse. I want to know what this poison was. It was good, right? Because they didn't drink that much of it. It's like some hardcore poison. How would they, like, I don't know. I have so many questions about the poison, especially because of the time period, like, you know, mid-19th century. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? But it was good. good. Like, I felt like it was over the top in how gruesome it was. Yeah, but do you expect anything less? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. Like you know when, like when uh, John Ruth is on top of Domagu and he's about to do his last, like he's just punching and punching and punching, yeah. and then he just vomits like, right into a mouth. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> it's so crazy. I love it, yeah. and that's not even the end of like all the shit that she has to go through in terms of like getting all yeah. sorts of stuff. That was on pretty reasonable. Yeah. yeah, that was pretty reasonable. She gets stew on her before this, right? Yeah, like he- oh, there's a whole scene. Oh, we didn't even really talk about that scene. Like the uh, the scene when they're eating stew. Yeah, I don't know much much to say. Like, I found it funny. Sorry, that like when at the first question of his Lincoln letter, he's just like, "Yeah, it's fake." Mm. You know, like he didn't have to tell the truth there. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an easy thing to prove either way. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, when they're sitting at the bar and they're eating the stew, because everybody's eating the stew in like different parts of the room, right? They're sitting at the bar. Yeah. Um, she's like just laughing. She's saying like hysterical shit out loud. And that's when he throws the stew at her face. That's right. Yeah. No, yeah, because she like, because he's still friends with uh, Marquise. Yeah. And she's like laughing at yeah. him because. Um, isn't, isn't Mannix like telling him, like, just like uh, undermining his entire like sort of life story in a way, not life story, but like, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm pretty sure Ruth at that point is like feeling pretty gutted and he feels like a bit of an idiot for believing that he had a real Lincoln letter. Yeah. Uh, He's actually quite mad at Marquise at this point. Yeah. Oh, actually in hindsight, you're right. I would have liked to have seen like how their relationship progressed now that his trust was broken. Yeah. But the reason why I said I didn't really want to see more Kurt Russell, I just didn't like his character that much. No, okay. Like, yeah, like he's just like this annoying. You don't guy love that moustache, man. That moustache is incredible. Moustache is cool, and when he like sort of like flicks it, <laughs> there's this one point where he flicks it, and it's like it's fantastic. <laughs> but no, the character didn't really like. I felt like the movie found its gear when he when he died. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And yeah, I would agree with that. Like it was pretty much at that midpoint where he does die, like pretty early on in the film, where the film gets a bit more pace behind it. Um, and it gets a bit more feisty and interesting. Um, Warren deduces that Bob is an imposter, as many hates Mexicans and would not leave one in charge of the lodge and executes him. Um, I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> 
What? Which part? Where Warren deduces that Bob is an imposter as, like, oh, not, not that part, but as many hates Mexicans and would not leave one in charge of the lodge. Did we ever learn that many hate, hate Mexicans? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, he, he goes on a big time. I mean, if you trust Samuel L. Jackson, then yeah, because he's like, there was a sign up front. Do you see that sign? And he's like, no. And he's like, it said no dogs or Mexicans. And she took it down because she allowed dogs. Oh, but that doesn't. So he goes on this huge tirade. Okay. He knows Minnie. Right. Yeah, but that. He doesn't. So he, he, trust he, he, he doesn't explicitly say Mexicans. Like, it's just because she likes dogs, right? She took. No, he's straight up. No, he says, like, no dogs or Mexicans. And then he's like, she took the sign down because she allowed dogs, which implies. Oh, she shit. Hates I. I, <laughs> I look. I just uh, heard that differently. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. I just missed that. Yeah, as long as you trust that Samuel Jackson's telling the truth, then yeah. And yeah. he just like shoots the crap out of him. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, Warren tells Morbury and Gage that unless one of them confesses to poisoning the coffee, he would kill Domague, forcing Gage to admit that it was him who poisoned the coffee. Uh, however, right afterwards, Warren is shot in the groin by a man hiding beneath the floorboards, and it turns out to be the stripper from Magic Mike. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mulbray draws a concealed gun and shoots Mannix, who returns fire, wounding Mulbray and forcing Gage against the wall. Now, okay, I want to talk quickly about the shootout. I think the shootout was done quite well because... Yeah. You know the, the the film is like pretty slow in the way it ex, it, it explains itself. Um, everything is like super slow pace, and I liked the fact that he took his time with the shootout, like with the slow mo and all that kind of stuff. There are points where this is not always slow mo, but I, I like the fact that he sort of chopped and changed between slow mo shots and even some of the, like the dialogue sequences were slow mo. You know, I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, he, he just distorted. Oh, the, not not at this point, but later. Like, there's a lot of Samuel Jackson going like. Dude. Dude. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that was. It was fun, but like, yeah, I think it was I, just I to change know. the pace and you know to give a give a sense of like a dynam dy- dynamism, <laughs> dy- dynamic. Feel, I do like I the visual elements of, of these um, shootouts. Mm. Like, you see the blood packet splurt. It, it feels real. Yeah. Right? Like, well, I don't know about it. feeling real. I don't know if they agree with that, but. <laughs> Well, not real, but it feels violent, I guess. Yeah, like, the idea yeah. that, like, they get shot once and they're probably going to die yeah. um, is much more evident in this film than any other film. Like, in a lot of other films, I see people get shot. I'm like, oh, yeah, they'll be all right. For sure. You know? Yeah. Whereas this one, I felt like, oh, shit, Oswaldo, he had, like, he had a pop come out. He's dead. That mm. guy's dead. And, and the cool thing about this is, like, when there's somebody underneath the floorboards, it's a reveal to another part of the plot, which is pretty cool. You know, and I think that's why it gets a bit more exciting. Is because oh, there's actually there's slightly higher stakes here. There's somebody else involved, and then we get to learn about the four, which is pretty cool. So one thing I like about this is that, like, you know, I've, I've been drawing parallels with uh, Reservoir Dogs, but like Reservoir Dogs is very much, you know, you've got these like core ensemble of characters. You introduce a new character, that new character, um, then sort of up the stakes, and it, they kind of do that here as well with the under the floorboards guy. Right? Yeah, like you've got a sense of who all the people are. You spend a fair bit of time learning who they are, and then boom, brand new person. Mm. And and like it's kind of interesting because like him kind of flips the whole thing on his head because at that point you've got Samuel L. Jackson and um, Mannix. I don't know his Chris Mannix. Name. Yeah, mm. like they're currently in charge until that happens. So yeah, yeah, it, it's when the, like, the the tipping off point for the film, and I think it's here. Yep. Is this the first like super violent thing that we get as well? Probably is right. Uh, I mean, no. I, I would say the uh, the poisoning is pretty violent. 
Oh yeah, oh, sorry, I just included all of this in one thing. <laughs> yeah, and you've got the killing of the old man, but that's not really that violent. Yeah, that one's, yeah, it's, it's okay, it's pretty mild. Pretty yeah. mild. Okay, so we get into chapter five, called The Four Passengers. You know what's real weird too? It's like, I'm, I'm watching up until this point, and I'm like, why is the movie called Hateful Eight? And I'm like, duh, there's eight people in <laughs> You know, I didn't, I didn't count. It, I didn't even. I, I didn't even like pick that up because, like, this whole time I'm watching the film. I'm like, when are we going to get hate? Like, hateful eight people, <laughs> and then by the time we get introduced to these guys, we I count the characters that walk, and you know, you you don't see their faces until um, many asks to remove the masks. Yeah. I'm counting the four, and I'm like, oh yeah, and the four people that we met in the oh, beginning. Yeah, there's four of them. There's four of them. Yeah, I was like, like, oh, there's eight of them. It, it wasn't so obvious for me. I don't know why. <laughs> the old guy is in number nine, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, he'll be number nine. Yeah, so he doesn't. He doesn't mm. get included as the hateful. Quite hateful. Well, I guess so, but not 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 in a concentrated, not in a vacuum, in in this particular movie, right? The backstory, yes, because he's like this racist, like black killing person, like in. Uh, I don't, you know, like in what, what was it, the Confederate War or whatever, but um, in a vacuum, no, he's he's not the he's not considered as the hateful eight because it's all about the eight people that show up in their one room. Yeah, mm. and remember, like, That's like fair. he's he's the guy. Like, there's no when when you look at this guy, the Smithers guy. There's no reason for him to be in the movie at all. Remember, like, um, uh, Morbray just is it Morbray? It is Morbray that's explaining it. No, no, no. It's Channing Tatum's character. He explains this. Yeah, he explains Like, you're just going to sit here. We're going to keep you alive. We're not going to tell you the reason why we're going to keep you alive because we probably don't have a reason. We're just going to... They explain it to him. They explain it to him. Well, like, he's going to sell the scenario of, like, you know, this, um, of what the state of the haberdashery is. Yeah, he he adds authenticity to uh, their current predicament, yeah. it feels like. Like, sitting there kind of disarms people. Yeah. That's kind of what they say. Yeah. Which, you know, may or may not be true. I guess so, but, like, um, he, they could have done it without him. Well, then you lose the Samuel L. Jackson uh, monologue, which I don't want to lose. <laughs> you get true. <laughs> we need the Samuel L. Jackson monologue. Uh, anyway. All right, so we get to Chapter 5. Four passengers earlier that day, Bob, Morbray, Gage, and the fourth man, Jody, arrive. Is that his name? Jody. Yeah, Jody. Damn. They should have just said, hey, man, we're going to call you Jeff. Channing. Now we're going to call you Jeff, and you're going to say, my name is Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> What's that from? That's from 22 Jump Street. <laughs> oh, that is the funniest thing that Channing Tatum has ever done. That is better than 21? Uh, I mean, Twenty One Jump Street is way better film, but yeah, but, I thought Twenty One was very good compared to but Twenty Two. That one scene where he says, "My name is Jeff," <laughs> I was hysterically laughing. I couldn't believe how funny that scene was. Uh, anyway, anyway, so uh, Jody arrive at Minnie's haberdashery and massacre everyone but Smithers. Jody tells Smithers they plan to ambush Ruth to rescue Domingue. And again, like Alex, like I said before, we don't know how they know that Ruth is going to show up with his sister to the haberdashery. <laughs> Just want to make that yeah. clear. Um, Jody's sister, and that they will spare him if he keeps quiet. Believing 
in extra larger will make the scene more believable. The bandits dispose of the bodies, hide the evidence, and stow guns around the lodge. As Ruth's stagecoach arrives, Jody hides beneath the floorboards, and then we get the rest of the film. It's not much to talk about in this Wait, chapter, uh, right? No, there's heaps, I reckon. Is there? Um, one. I find it funny. Like, there's, she, He's got Zoe, Zoe Bell in this movie. Oh, she's in the beginning of the film, though. <laughs> Is she in the, oh, she, sorry. No, she's in this part. Yeah, my bad, my bad. She's in this yeah, part. Yeah, she, she's like the driver. I, I don't know what like what Tarantino owes her. I don't <laughs> like her in this movie at all. Like her character, she just says, I'm from New Zealand. Uh, like like her, her dialogue with Michael Madsen is just blended in the background. Like like it's supposed to be some kind of background sound effects or something. It's sometimes the camera is and the focus is on her, and then it just the yeah. conversation is still going and it's blending in the background noise. I don't know what the choice was for that. Makes no sense to me. Is she like, like she's just meant to be this chirpy, happy person, and you're meant to feel bad that like sh- they're killing her? But you know, Minnie's nice, Dave is nice, the other woman who's plucking the chicken is nice. Like you don't need. I just I just don't know. Like it's not like she's terrible. She's not terrible at it. Like it's fine. But like. Yeah, she's not terrible, uh, to, but like she's from Auckland uh, traveling to America that time. Well, this is know. the thing. That's the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, dude, this is the it, mid nineteenth yeah. century. There's no yeah. way that New Zealanders are over there. <laughs> I don't, like, you know, the thing that's weird is that I actually do not know. Like, oh, come you know, on, like Chinese really? people were, were 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 trying to like pull gold from rivers back then, right? Like, so yeah, it makes sense that there's Asians bubble. in the US at that time. Yes, there were. There were quite a lot of like uh, um, uh, placement workers from China um, during yeah. the mid nineteenth century of the US. But New Zealand, dude, New Zealand is is like the youngest country in the world, <laughs> right? Because like the thing is, like, I was like thinking, wait, were they traveling back then? No, but I didn't way, know enough dude, to no really way. get mad about dude, it, dude. Like the English, you know I mean? the English people hadn't even arrived in New Zealand at that time. <laughs> Yeah, okay, okay. Well, then that's like, <laughs> I, it, just, it took me out of the film where I had to stop and think like, wait, is this possible? And like, I know I don't, I shouldn't care, but she doesn't add so much that I'm like, yeah, let's, you know. Dude, it took me out of the film um, completely because for one, she's terrible at acting. It's like when she's, <laughs> when, when she's doing her scene, it looks like she's trying to act. Like she's, she, she's she like. She kind of plays the same person every time. Like just cheerful New Zealander yeah. is just like. This and death proof. Yeah, she's like the most cliched yeah. Kiwi person that is out of, like, not even the right time period. Um, that can't even act properly. I'm sorry, but she's just terrible at acting. This. <laughs> she's not supposed to. Like, I can't really yeah. speak to her acting skills. I, I don't really know enough about acting, but um, she did pull me out of this film, especially you know, coming just out of death proof, where she's the same person pretty much. Yeah. It it yeah, that was rough. It was just weird. It was so weird. And I was like, man, yeah, I'm from uh, Auckland. I like that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like that, especially the fact that she said I'm from Auckland. Like, just don't ask about the mm-hmm. accent. Like, just try and like, play it off. Just like, like write her a different character. She was just given a a terrible character that, and she doesn't even have the acting skills to be able to hold it up. You know. <laughs> anyway, I, I did like like when we started getting like the the Tarantino voiceover. I don't know for some reason I did enjoy this. It's kind of weird. Dude, like, you know what's weird? I didn't even know also, it was Tarantino. I had to get up after. Like it was just a voice, right? Like, it is but you know, Tarantino's voice is so distinct. Why wasn't it so distinct in this? I think he's been doing lessons. That was weird. Like when it came up at the end, I was like, "What? That was Tarantino in the reading?" 
Oh, really? I didn't even. I had to. I think I saw it afterwards when, like, I was like sort of reading about this film. Uh, but like, yeah, I liked. Like, I'm not gonna say, oh, I love the voiceover. Like, it is it's fine. It is what it is. But like, I just liked the fact that you got context in this movie. It would have been so easy not to ever show it, right? Mm. Like, you could have just shown it through some other means. Like, oh yeah. Like at the end, she's like, these people, they're all with me. You know, they're part of the Domingri gang. Mm. Like, yeah, that's kind of how you could have done it. But I did enjoy the fact that I got to see the plan come together. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. And I was kind of half expecting Tarantino to do that, you know, to show us, like, some kind of background story for some substance to... Reservoir, he doesn't do that, really. No, but it's pretty well explained throughout the whole movie anyway. Yeah, no, that's the thing, though. Like, he could have easily just gone with the fact that she explains who they are, and that would have explained it perfectly fine. I Mm -hmm. wouldn't have had any issues with it. The fact that he did show us, I thought, was better for the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, And also, like, you know, he he wouldn't be able to hire more actors, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just feel like like, there's... there's, um, The film kind of, like, skirts this line between, like, tense, stressful uh, mystery film and kind of, like, a fun... Uh, rompy kind of thing, mm. this makes it sort of shift a little bit more to the romp. Because yeah. the mystery kind of goes away when you find out, okay, I know who are the bad guys and who are the good guys and who I should support and not. Because like up until pretty late, you don't know if you're supposed to support Chris Mannix. You don't know if you're supposed to support like Marquise. Mm. I kind of know everyone's kind of evil and, and good in their own way, but like this really establishes like who the chess pieces are and, and what and what side they stand on. Yeah, I guess in terms of uh, narrative structure, like, but mm. but this is what makes it interesting is that the characters are not really good. <laughs> None of them are really good. Um, you yeah. can just you can you can try and pit pit uh, teams against each other. You, that's that's that can be objective, but um, like I still like the fact that there's some kind of thriller element to it throughout the whole film and especially when we get to the end because you don't know Mm. whose side you want to take um and i don't think it's um the right move on which side you want to take either i think it's like you don't want to take any side after this scene after this scene you're still thinking yeah i I might i want i might want domagu to get out of this um no no i'm not thinking that i'm thinking more of the case of like all of these people are super dodgy I don't want to take anyone. Oh, yeah, they're all terrible. I, they're all terrible. I don't want to take any, I don't want to take anyone. Like I don't have this immediate reaction like, oh yeah, I want to be on uh Chan and Tatum's side. No way. No way. I'm just mm. like all these everyone uh everyone in this film up until this chapter is super dodgy. I'm not going to take any sides. <laughs> right. Okay, that's interesting. No, no. Like everyone's super dodgy, but I definitely found after this scene it was obvious who was dodgy <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess if there's such a thing um yeah. let's get into the last chapter and i find it interesting that it's called the last chapter and it's not called chapter six. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice. um black man or white hell uh, mannix and warren both seriously wounded hold domague gage and the dying morbray at gunpoint they flush jody out by threatening to kill daisy and warren shoots him dead Domagu claims that more of her brother's men are waiting in Red Rock uh, to kill Mannix and sack the town. If Mannix shoots Warren and allows her to escape, she stays. Oh, she says the gang will spare him. I want to know where this Red Rock place is as well. I- I'm interested in that story. 
Show me Red Rock. Like where it is? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The town sounds kind of interesting, maybe. <laughs> sounds like there's a whole oh, bunch. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like a melting pot of racist people and not racist people. <laughs> and <laughs> well, It sounds pretty small, right? The fact that like 15 people are enough to sack and murder the whole town implies to me that it's not a very big town. Nah, but I can imagine like, you know, just a gang going into a town during that time was scary because... Yeah, you okay. know, like who has weapons to defend themselves other than gangs? Back they all would. Would they? I don't know. You know, I, I feel like people would be more fearful back then. If there's a group of people that have freaking shotguns running down on horses, I'm like, nah, get the hell out of here. Anyway, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, uh, where was I? As Domagu and Morbray taunt Warren, he shoots Domagu in the foot. Then Morbray in the leg, who dies from his wounds. Gage draws a revolver hidden under a table, and this is another slow-mo shot. Um, mm. But is shot dead by Mannix and Warren. Warren tries to shoot Domingue, but is out of bullets. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that part. Mannix decides Domingue is bluffing, but faints from his wounds. <laughs> Domingue hacks off Ruth's handcuffed arm and frees herself this is so crazy how like he has this yeah, in the movie. I, I, I can watch this yeah i was feeling sorry for you i was like oh he's gonna probably close his eyes at this part yeah uh, totally <laughs> warren persuades him to hang her from the rafters oh wait, no you, you oh sorry line. did i skip a line oh yeah sorry as okay. she reaches for uh, mannix's gun he regains consciousness and shoots her, wounding her again. Warren persuades him to hang her from the rafters in honor of Ruth. Um, afterwards, as the two lie dying, Mannix reads aloud Warren's forged Lincoln letter and crumples it up. I oh, see that doesn't actually play that scene out the way that I thought it would. Like the way you describe it, it makes you sound angry. <laughs> it's a loving crumple, I would say. Well, yeah. I mean, if if everybody that's listening to this to this uh review and recap up to this point would have seen the film uh, assuming we would have seen the film and uh it yeah. is supposed to be poetic and uh yeah. charming by the end of it and it does kind of paint a picture that Mannix is probably an honorable char- charming guy hence why they selected him to be sheriff of the town um yeah. you know he probably has some honorable trait and if there's any person that could be quote-unquote good by the end of this is probably Mannix in hindsight, yeah, like, Mannix is kind of funny in the sense that he goes through the arc. Like, I was kind of making a point earlier in the film. And no that, one like, has an arc. No <laughs> he's got an arc. Yeah. He's definitely got an arc. He kind of does. He gets to a point where he's, like, saying, you know what? Like, you don't lead an army. My dad led an army, and, like, I'm really proud of what he did. And there were 400 men who stuck behind him um, based purely on, on, on respect. And, um, like, you see Samuel L. Jackson look at him with kind of, like, Oh yeah, I, I see it now. I see how you're proud of your dad, even though your dad was on the other side. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, he has the most established up, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because he, he kind of proves himself to Samuel L. Jackson because Samuel L. Jackson hates him for like mm. the majority of this film, but wants him to be on his side at the end when you know, obviously, when they're all like kind of dying yeah. at, the, at the deathbed, so to speak. <clears throat> um, that is the end of the plot. The recap. Let's do some quick. Fast fire. Wait, you don't want to say anything much about like this song? Oh, okay, or? yeah, sure, sure. We can. I have nothing else to say, really. Do you but... <laughs> oh, uh, really? Uh... I mean, what else do I want to say? Okay, so I feel like okay, one of the funnier film uh, parts in this movie is flushing out Jody. Yeah. Like, it is hilarious that, like, you've got Channing Tatum, you've got this, like, big backstory for him, and then he shows up and he's like, you know, 
uh, he's he's like has this sweet tender moment with his sister, and then he's just his head explodes. Yeah. But but and but even like more the, to that though is um, that like he's sorry, he's yeah. got this reputation, you know, in the town. Is it in the town or yeah. is it in the whole Wild West or whatever? In the world, like he's he's worth fifty k, right? Yeah, so. yeah. He's got this big reputation that he's this hotshot dude who's like, I don't know, supposed to be like the badass James Bond of the of the world or whatever. Um, but yeah. just dies instantly when he comes out. <laughs> yeah, I think like that's the thing. Like when you watch these movies, it never goes like this, right? You never have like come out with your hands up. Then they come out, they talk, blah blah blah. Something happens. He gets a gun. Mm. They have a bit of a fight. Blah blah blah. But this character, he's like, he shows up. And then Samuel Jackson just shoots him, <laughs> and it's just fantastic. Great, yeah. I don't know. It was such a subverting uh, of um, expectations. Tarantino's just not afraid to do these types of things, and he lands them. You know, for for yeah, like for the most part, he lands these these types of um, unconventional parts of his films. Um, and I and I, I like the the lines that Samuel Jackson has, like um, when he says, "You know, throw the gun out," and he's like, "I know you have a second gun in there as well. You know, throw it out too." And he's like, I don't. And he's like, well, you better pull one out of your ass because I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. And then he throws it out and he's like, see, see I do I it. Do it. <laughs> um, he has the coolest lines in the movie. Yeah, no, he's like, he's like the main character. He's got like, it's like, uh, it's kind of like an homage to just all the cool Samuel L. Jackson stuff that yeah. has happened in all of his movies. The Samuel L. Jacksonisms. <laughs> but the thing I also liked was the fact that, like, you know, you've got this whole, like, somewhat, like, this movie is quite good at like building up tension and then just sort of letting it dissipate almost entirely, mm. which you know some people would really dislike. But like, you've got this um, sequence where Daisy is trying to convince Chris Mannix yeah. about like turning, and for some reason, I never really felt that Chris was going to turn. Mm. And then at the end, he just kind of like shoots her down, like shoots down her bluff. He's like, "Yeah, no, you're lying." <laughs> I don't know. Like, like I that's really probably felt, again like, like, his detective skills, right? And like, that's probably why he's a sheriff. He's he's probably got a good <laughs> sense of um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, probably got a good well, yeah, like a good sense of judgment, right? Like, he's, but like at this point, do you even believe that he's the sheriff? Because like, it's constantly questioned. Nah, like movie. I mean, like, I don't, I don't believe, I, I don't believe any of these sheriff. characters, <laughs> like in what they say. Yeah, right. So, like, to, to say that he has detective skills, like, that was kind of a shock for me. But, like, mm. some people who love, like, a very tense thriller would probably see this as a bad thing, that, like, this scene didn't feel that tense for me. Mm. But I really like the fact that, like, these two characters are kind of, like, they're friends. She's trying to get them to turn on each other, and he just doesn't really entertain it for very long. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I don't... <clears throat> if, if all uh, what the characters are saying is true... Um, then for sure it's it's like it's an easy assumption to think that he can he can have good sense of judgment of characters because you know that's the reason why he's a sheriff yeah. or whatever. And everyone seems yeah. everyone in that world seems to believe that he is the sheriff. It's, no, I thought no one did. Oh, really? Like, <laughs> yeah, like like John Ruth definitely doesn't. Marquise doesn't. They all don't believe him, and then like he's he's behavior. Oh, the yeah, first half yeah. of the film, talking about that. not very sheriff like. Yeah, right? Like yeah. he's like kind of like a kid with excitement at seeing yeah. Smithers. Uh, he doesn't come across as very like commanding at all. Maybe yeah, so, I guess because like the last thing that we learn about him is is at the end it seems I don't know a little bit poetic and honorable. That's, that's probably why I'm thinking yeah, yeah maybe he was a sh- sheriff. I don't know. <laughs> like he probably was. Like he probably was telling the truth. Yeah. But um. 
actually, you know what's actually kind of weird? Oh my god, okay. I didn't I don't know if they explained this very well. Um Chris Mannix shows up, right? And he says, Oh, you're the hangman, Mr. Mowbray. Do you have the warrant for Lance something? And then Mowbray's like, Yep, I've got that. And he takes it out and he's got this warrant for this guy who's supposed to be hung. But he's not a hangman, right? He's just a gang member. Hmm. So how did they have knowledge of the <clears throat> same guy? If well, you're assuming, like, we have to assume that he is a sheriff. Let's say that's true. That he just has all the well, documents. No, but but he asked Malbray, does he have the warrant? And Malbray was like, yep, here it is. And then um, uh, Mannix is sort of like, oh, yeah, cool. I know this guy. This is the guy that I'm here to, you know, you know, hang or something to, to get hung. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I genuinely don't understand if Malbray is not the hangman as he claims he is. How did he have the warrant that the sheriff was expecting? Unless they're in cahoots, but they're not in cahoots because because they end up like yeah. shooting out. They're not because they end up shooting yeah. each other. Hmm. I don't get that. Okay. Well, maybe yeah. he was a real hangman. I don't know. But he's in a gang. Yeah. He doesn't have a day job. <laughs> I don't know. I guess, I guess this is like Wonder. this. This feeds into all the dodginess about all the characters. Is that there seems to be conflicting ideas about these characters and conflicting stories. He's <clears throat> like my cover story is that I'm the hangman. I need all my details. I need, like, or maybe he's fully maybe committed he's to right. like living a double life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. You know. Yeah, maybe. Like, uh, well, because because the gang members have to be somewhat discreet, I'd imagine, right? Like, like maybe people don't even know the faces of the gang members because they're always in masks, and maybe yeah, that is his day job, right? <laughs> you know, there's actually another thing that's kind of a little bit I found a little bit funny. So the gang members come in four hours in advance. They kill all the people. They hide them. They put all these guns in all these different spots. Like they've got the jump, right? They've got like the the craziest jump yeah, and they, and they still plan. lose <laughs> their plan is bad <laughs> like terrible <laughs> gang members <laughs> right like, like like he's got like a gun up here and he's got a gun on the table and i'm like and then like you know when john ruth comes and and um asks him for his gun mm. they just give it to him yeah. and then <laughs> they just give it up but this almost like I, i'm almost like led to believe that this is probably what the level of intelligence was back in that time right Okay, that's fair. Like that's fair. you, you can't you can't expect these people to be like sophisticated freaking uh, Ethan Hunts and Jason Bournes, you know, <laughs> like because they just wouldn't have yeah. that level of intelligence back then. Um, so it just, seems to me that it's uh, um, like you reckon it's, that's on purpose. It, yeah, it's on purpose, and it could be true. Maybe that's like his Tarantino's interpretation is yeah. is probably researched you know maybe uh, i'd assume you know maybe he's he's got some really good research data and really <laughs> iq level back in the west yeah. it's like 16 like, all, all right, right i'm with cool. you i got this this is gonna be a fun be a script <laughs> <laughs> yeah because like, if you've got that much of a jump i reckon you can do a better plan like why not have two guys under the floorboards yeah that would have been but how, how often like if you think about it if you think about history back then, how often are people doing like um, sophisticated plans <laughs> to like jump into? I can't imagine that was a common thing that people were learning yeah. and then and therefore developing like schemes. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. Don't, you know, back then it was just like 
it was the wild west it was like shoot them up let's like ransack the town and just like take it i'm pretty sure this elaborate plan was so sophisticated for them that they just um they didn't know how to execute it and they were like shit that on paper it was good but we didn't execute it yeah. very well <laughs> i reckon like there's like okay there's a plan here where you just like like marquise john ruth show up right boom let's get shot done plan's finished because ob is not going to be brave chris mannix is probably not going to be that brave that is done yeah i don't think ob deserved to be shot <laughs> Yeah, but like I mean, they, they they shot a lot of people, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, but they wouldn't have shot Obi because Obi's just the driver. They yeah. let him go. Obi was the most innocent character in this film. <laughs> yeah, it was funny where he's like, "I'm not going back out there." He died. Takes the blanket. Yeah, dude is like so sweet and gentle. Yeah. yeah, and then he just like spews up all his guts. <laughs> okay, so some quick facts. Um, these facts are a little bit long, but oh, let's... one last thing. Oh, actually, okay. sorry. <laughs> Did you feel any catharsis when Domagu got hung? Uh, no. Was that a fun scene for you? It was kind of like, yeah, sure. You you had your fate coming. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Okay. I, I was kind of like... I, I would have been okay like, with like her just getting shot straight up as well. Like, it, I don't care any... Like, I don't care about any of these characters. Like, all of them are pretty, yeah. pretty dirty. Like, if all of them died at the end, I would have been happy with that as well. Yeah, okay. And that would have been a fitting. Okay. It would have been a fitting ending if all of them just died. <laughs> they all died, though, right? Like, well, except for Emil like, Jackson implies that like there is no way they're surviving these next two days. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But but they are. Uh, yeah, there's no medical yeah. help. There's no medical help. They're yeah, done. Yeah, they're done. Yeah, but does Maddox like die? Like, does he st- is he still like alive when the credits show? I think he's still alive when he's. They're, they're both they're both alive by the time the film ends, but it's just kind of implied that they will not survive. Yeah, I guess so. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. Like, there's no catharsis in this. I wasn't looking for catharsis either. You know, I was yeah. I was just looking for some kind of satisfactory tie up that suits the film, and I think that's he he accomplished that. Yeah, cool. All right, yeah. sorry. Facts. What what do you got? All right, some quick facts. Counting generation track in Inglorious Bastards and brief cameo in. Kill Bill Volume 2, The Hateful Eight will mark the sixth time Tarantino and actor Samuel L. Jackson will collaborate together in a film project. How do you feel about Samuel L. Jackson and Tarantino's collaboration so far? Should they do more? Should they do more? Should they do less? Is there ones that just don't work? What didn't work? Like, I think he was probably one of the... Okay, definitely the best part of Pulp Fiction. One of the... Wait, six... Yeah, he's probably one of the best characters in in um, Jackie Brown. Probably the best character in Jackie Brown. I'd say. Oh, uh, yeah, true. He's like second best character maybe in Django, mm. like behind Christoph Waltz. Uh, I can't even think of six. Like, what else did he do? He didn't do Reservoir Dogs. He didn't do Death Proof, did he? Not Death Proof. No. He's <clears throat> he's, he's in uh, Inglorious Bastards as like a pianist or something, right? Like a tiny cameo. No, he's no, he's the narrator in Inglorious Bastards. He's he's in it though. He's in it like for a split second. He's like a painter or something. No, he's he's something weird. No, he's not in it at all. <laughs> he's just narrating it. Oh no, Kill Bill. He's the pianist. Yeah, the yeah. organist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's he's in about. the church. Yeah. Yeah, 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 in the church. That's right. 
Um, yeah, no, he should. He's fantastic. He's he does a great job in Tarantino films. I think probably his best stuff is Tarantino stuff. Probably, like, yeah. His uh, you know, House Slave is much better than Nick Fury. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he's pretty damn good as Nick Fury, but I would, I would agree that as most of his good work comes from Tarantino's uh, him and Tarantino's collaboration. Um, yeah. Okay, the Weinstein Company announced that, as per Tarantino's wishes, the Hateful Eight will be given a wide theatrical release with Bonavita Sony Mill film prints. There you go. The last major Hollywood film to be given such a release was Ron Howard's Far and Away in 992 although kenneth branagh's hamlet got a limited 70 mil release in 996 do you care much about 70 mil prints probably not <laughs> i can't tell the difference dude yeah like i saw it on prime like <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean i'm the same too i saw it on uh, netflix so yeah is it on netflix no it's not yeah it's on netflix no way yeah i just watched it on netflix <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, it doesn't matter. I, I had both, but like, I wh- why would I have preferred it on on? Maybe because you're um, searched time. and go as far as Netflix. Um, yeah, I just kind of looked it up on. Yeah, you're right. It's here. There it is. There it is. Yeah. I want to see where I can get once upon. Okay, no, let's talk about that later. Anyway, yeah. What else? Um, Tarantino's previous film Django Unchained introduced the director to shooting a western and he immediately fell in love with the genre after completing the film Tarantino knew he wasn't ready to let the wild west go so he started working out ways to continue the Django universe and he began working on a sequel to Django Unchained but uh, as he kept writing and began to realize the story was actually being held back by the presence of Django, Tarantino then scrapped his initial idea and put Samuel Jackson's character in place of Jamie Foxx's Django. This allowed for all the characters in the film to be um, mystery to the audience, and it freed up Tarantino not to be tied to Django as a moral compass. After all, in a movie with hateful in the title there is little room for any character with strong morals um however the film is mm. still set in the Django universe and is the closest thing to a sequel audiences will get for now do you want to see a Django sequel or do you think this is the closest and are you satisfied with this i mean i'm satisfied with this i didn't care i didn't know that it was in the same universe i don't think it matters that it's in the same universe like yeah uh, neither like <laughs> No, but the thing is, like, so in Django's time, there is, like, slavery, right? Like, slavery is rife. Mm-hmm. He is a man that is, like, affected by slavery. By the time this movie happens, Samuel L. Jackson, who has war exploits in the Civil War, uh, which happens, you know, essentially to kill slavery, is now very old and grizzled. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how Django would be in this timeline. He would be pretty old in this timeline. You mean Samuel Jackson would be pretty old? <clears throat> no, Django. If Django was in a timeline where he is like, what, 30 years old mm-hmm. by the time Django is happening, and that's like right in the height of slavery. So you don't know if like the Civil War starts right after. Yeah. Maybe the Civil War starts for like 10 more years mm-hmm. or something. I right. think it's relatively close, right? I mean, the slavery abolishment of slavery wasn't wasn't it the mid nineteenth century? Um, yeah, but I don't. No, there's no dates for any of these films, right? I'm no. just trying to go off ages here. Yeah, yeah. Because if Django is in the midst of slavery and and Samuel L. Jackson was young when he had these 
these battles, I guess. And these battles are the abolishment of slavery. Mm. So it's like it's been years. Oh, has it been years since then? Because, yeah, because that's the thing, actually. Mannix's dad was fighting a lost war cause. Mm-hmm. So it's implied that Mannix's dad was fighting when the South lost. Mm-hmm. So this is, so slavery is, like, well and truly done at this point. Yeah. Which implies that Django would be, like, at least Samuel Jackson's age. Probably, yeah. In this universe. But it, it doesn't really fly well um, being in the same universe, um, so to speak, because, like, unless you're willing to just say that, um, yeah, Samuel Jackson just happens to play two different characters. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, you know, Django's Samuel L. Jackson died, right? Like, that guy's that guy's super dead. We're not saying uh, that... We're talking about Django, like, Jamie Foxx's character, right? Yeah, but, that like, it's not the Django character, though. Well, isn't, isn't that what the... the no, no, he's, the just, say, he's just saying... The trivia was saying. He's just saying it's, it's replacing Django's character. Yeah. He was going to put Django in it. Yeah. Yeah. And he ended up ultimately not doing that. But I'm just trying to say, like, if they did, he would have had to have been super old for the timeline. No, they would, they would have just changed the timeline in the film. I'd imagine. <laughs> I don't know if the film works if, like, if, if the Confederacy and, and the other side, mm. um, that all that tension doesn't exist. But, but right? I guess I this is the point. This there. is the point of, like, why he had to change the character. So then it opened up. You know, th- this part ah, it opened up with the yeah, different okay. parts of the story and how he could tell the story. It just would have been a yeah, completely okay. different story otherwise. Yeah. Like, I do like the fact that he decided to go with this. Cause, like, I, you know what? You mentioned the fact that, like, these are all mysterious people and they're all terrible. If you had someone like Django there, someone that we loved, someone mm. that we had this, like, two-hour experience with, it would have really, like, messed up the feel of the Yeah, film. yeah, which is exactly what it says here, you know, however, the film is still set in the Django universe and is the closest thing, sequel, um, oh, no, wait, what I was saying, um, yeah, I guess about the, about the moral part of it, you know, like, because Django is, for all intents and purposes, somewhat of a moral character. Um, yeah, he is, for sure. And, yeah, like, it's, this but film is, like, I guess, the, the original thing, like, no, nah, I don't think we need a sequel to Django. And if we do, it should be like a e- equalizer style um, <laughs> just assassinating all the slavery, slavery owners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just like this this badass dude going around killing bad guys, and we just watch and enjoy it. <laughs> right on. And the last one I have here is with a reported forty four million dollar production budget. The Hateful Eight is a relatively inexpensive production by modern Hollywood standards, and yes, that is true. It doesn't really mm. come as a surprise that since Tarantino is one of the few directors major few directors who is especially mindful of his budget and whose movies usually turn a profit theatrically. Um, how do you feel about this? Do you think that Tarantino should always do a lot of these types of films where it's a pretty mild budget considering the type of scope that he wants to present to the world? Do you think he should always stick to that? Or do you think um, um, he's a bit of both? Or if we look at his previous films and some yeah. of the best films that he's done, um, and Glorious Bastards was a pretty low budget, and it turned. It was pretty high, I thought. Was it? Oh, I think it was like ninety million or something. Yeah, that's heaps. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, in his world, it's very, very, um, yeah. it's very big, right? Like that was nine. Oh, that was 70, 70, 70. Okay. and Django was a hundred, right? I think so. Yeah, and then in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is more. It's like one hundred and fifty or something. Oh, is it? Mm. Um, yeah, like it's kind of weird to say, right? Because like I think with Tarantino, like 
the best, like the movies that I like the most are the high budget ones like Django and Inglourious. But they just so happen but, to be, right? Well, I mean, it, the budget is the budget. Like, like the, the, the final product is kind of a result of the budget in some mm. ways. But like, he is very good at turning out really great movies with low budgets and like this movie didn't need a very big budget it's like a very very personal kind of film it kind of feels almost like a play sometimes yeah it does like it it's just like has that thing. has a kind of play feel to it yeah yeah it has a play quality to it so like i, I think that um he does both well and i i'm not really i don't really have a preference which way he goes because like if he churned out another pulp fiction later on I, i'm sure everyone would love it yeah um like eight mil yeah yeah. Well, what do you think? You prefer? I know you prefer his high budget films compared to his cheaper films, but like, uh, I don't really have a preference, really. Like, just just give him some money, let him make what he wants, and um, yeah, you know, like, because like Django is just really. It's kind of funny when you said that Django had like what one more minute to this or one less minute. Yeah. Like Django doesn't feel as long because the story is so sprawling. Like you've got this sort of arc of this guy who's a slave, then he becomes trained, then he goes on some missions, then he gets better, and then he does his like one final mission. Mm. And so the time doesn't feel quite as long. Whereas this one is like it's this claustrophobic, constrained, very personal story. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I can see how the budget is much lower, but also the time felt much longer. Yeah, it feels much longer because like there's not a lot of <laughs> locations that we jump to. You know, there's there's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. Like, the not broken up. There's probably like three locations that we jump to, if that. Maybe four. Like what? Uh, horses <laughs> inside and outside? Yeah, pretty much. Like, you know, the, the, yeah. the first location that we have is like somewhere out in the middle of nowhere in the snow mm. where he gets, where, um, uh, what's her name? Domagu gets punched and they're both out in the cart. And then we've got the, obviously the cabin. And then we've got the other location where Samuel Jackson takes the guy out on hostage out in the snow as well in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fourth one is probably... Um, no, that's it, right? Just those. The barn. The barn. The barn? Yeah, where like, him and the Mexican are chatting. Like, it's, it's like a oh, yeah, that's thing. right. They oh. are in the barn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's about it. But um, And so naturally, because of the lack of locations that they explore, naturally it's always going to feel like a movie's going to be way longer than it should be. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but I do, I do credit him for having such a vibrant uh, script for these characters to make it interesting. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone else doing that. Like, I actually think it's kind of interesting, right? Like, cause like some people might, I don't know if anyone's actually said this, I'm just making this up, but like you could be assume, uh, you could assume, sorry, that some people might take credit away from his previous dialogue because like, Christoph Waltz is too charming, too engaging, right? Like, they just say, oh, yeah, just go eat the scenery and, and have a good time, and, like, the crowd would love it. This film is one where I found the dialogue engaging, but none of the characters were actually like that. Like, they're not that interesting on their own. Mm. They're just interesting because of the way they interact with each other, and I think there's a certain skill to that, because you can have, like, a fun, you know, whimsical guy going around saying big words and, and just being, like, a cool guy to watch. Mm. But I think it's more difficult to have good dialogue where none of the characters are actually particularly interesting on their own. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's it. Our review and recap is now finished on the eighth movie of Tarantino series of the Tarantino nice. Legacy series. What Legacy are we going to give this out of ten? You go first. I went first on the uh, highlights and lowlights. Okay, I'm going to give this a seven out of ten. 
Seven. Mm. Oh, okay. I think it deserves it a seven. It's not quite an eight. Eight's quite strong for this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not quite a six because I don't think the movie is weak by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so what did we give Jackie Brown? Four. <laughs> I, no, we gave it a six and a 6.5. Oh. <laughs> what did we give four? Oh, Death uh, We gave Death Ruth four. Kill Bill 2, we gave a 7 and 8. We gave that higher because Kill Bill 1 is, is astonishingly terrible compared to <laughs> Volume 2. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to like sort of base this on historical, like what did like what did I do? Yeah. Try not um, to, though. Just go with your first impression. Like, I think I'm happy with a 7. Like, I was going to say 7, 7 to 8, like maybe a 7.5. It's like... I did like the, the Glass Onion vibes. I did like the Reservoir Dogs vibes. It was long, and the first half is kind of a hard slog. So maybe it's a seven. You're right. Seven. Two sevens. Two flat sevens. There we go. There we go. That is great. Oh, I'm glad that we were pretty much at the end of the Tarantino series, because I'm ready to like give Tarantino a break. <laughs> You're ready to branch out? You know, yeah. I'm actually not looking forward to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm not. Do you reckon it's the same kind of thing that we had with this movie, though? Like, we've got both like uh, slightly skewed, slightly negative impressions of the film. Well, no, because I think people really like it. <laughs> and you, and you um, think you're just not like it because heaps of people like it. <laughs> well, I've seen the first like 15 minutes. I think it was just, it was slow in that. Mm. Um, and it just wasn't very funny. Like it, I, I, re- it I just remember me- um, not overly enjoying the movie, but I thought I was fine with it on my first viewing. Um, uh-huh. Oh, so you've seen it before? I saw it at the cinema, but that's the first and last time I've seen it. And that was, what, 2019 yeah. or whatever it was, or 18, 17? Yeah, and like, the thing that's hard for me is that, like, you know, like, slavery, I know about slavery in, in some respect. Like, World War Two. I know about World War Two. I don't really know about, like, Hollywood of the 70s. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the murder that happened and, and who those people are mm. and what that all meant. And, like, you know, in hindsight, I probably should read about this before this film because like yeah like i don't know who sharon tate is and i don't know why her dying was such a big deal or how mm. she died or what that meant just let the movie speak for itself i mean a powerful movie should be able to tell you a good a good enough compelling story to then inspire you to do some research after not not before the fact <laughs> i don't know though because like i feel like like i feel like this movie the way that it's been described to me is that it's similar to django and um, inglorious in the sense that it takes a historical event and then he puts his own spin on it and says like this is how we, how it could have happened if things were cooler yeah. i believe that there is benefit to knowing how it actually happened i think the movie so that you can be like oh that's cool i think a movie hasn't done its job if it doesn't inspire you afterwards to look up some research or look up some resources or something Right, so you'd be like, I'll be like, oh, that's how it was meant to happen. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's just an. I think it's just an added bonus for people that know the background yeah. story to know to sort of recognize that on screen and be like, oh, whoa, that is true. That's so cool how they depict it on screen and blah blah blah. Um, I don't think any like I don't think you need to do any research whatsoever. Like, look at Oppenheimer. I didn't really know anything about Oppenheimer, but then I got so fascinated by the movie to then do some research on the character. I have not seen that yet. Yeah, you should. You should put it on your list. You're doing a disservice to your, to a uh, movie lover. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it on the TV when it when it comes out in um, Netflix. Okay. I don't think I'm he's. Oh uh, yeah, maybe on Netflix. Yeah, true. I mean, all of them do, right? Wow. All, of, all of Nolan's stuff. Comes. You know yeah. what's actually crazy? Interstellar, I think, is leaving Netflix, and I 
was intending to see that. I haven't seen that. You yet. haven't seen Oh, my goodness. I, to- I told you before, right? Like, oh, I, don't I, watch forgot, I forgot. I always forget a lot of stuff you say anyway. <laughs> dude, dude, <laughs> uh, when you watch Interstellar, please tell me. Yeah. So then can we do a watch party? Because I will watch it again with you. Oh, wait. Leaving soon. It's leaving soon on Netflix. Okay. Let me know when you want to watch it because I'll watch that film yeah. anytime. Um, but we should, we should do a yeah. watch party. We'll jump into Discord. Do a watch party. Watch together because I, I really want to know what your opinion is of that film. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. You think I'm going to like it or not? Because like, I've got some weird views sometimes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Interstellar is just, it's an amazing film. And it I didn't know it's, it's Matthew McConaughey crying scene because I've seen it oh, in so many so memes. memes. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's unfortunate. But, man, the movie hits so deep and so many levels. Every time I watch it, I'll learn something a little bit new. But that's just a classic Christopher Nolan trait. Damn. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge right, film, huge film. Um, and I would I like this way. I'll <laughs> say there's one thing. I would argue that it's probably one of the films that has the highest stakes in any film ever made. I would argue that. Okay, that well, what do you mean? Like when when a film creates stakes in a film? Oh, within, within itself. Within itself. Within yeah, itself. Yeah. Okay, cool. I think like for humanity. I'm like, what would it <laughs> Yeah, move, <laughs> movies creating stakes for humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I don't even like, like it has the highest stakes of any film. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, would it like negotiate a treaty or something? <laughs> no, no, no. The stakes that it builds within the within its own world is yeah, yeah, one of the best that I've ever seen in a film. Okay, I would like that. I do like that. I like yeah. I like things mattering. Yep. And it's palpable. You feel it. Oh, it's very good. <laughs> All right. All right. So we have uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next. Yeah, that right? is the last of the Tarantino. That, Liam, that closes, closes Tarantino, Tarantino, Tarantino the world. And um, I'm super excited. I know you said that you're probably not going to do it, but I'm super excited to announce that I'm going to, with a bunch of other guests on the show, brand new guests to the show as well, the Lord of the Rings Ooh. trilogy is coming up. And uh, this is a fitting time. Nice. So we're pretty excited for that. I love the trilogy. I'm going to rewatch the whole trilogy on, on one sit down um, at the Orpheum. You're doing that. Um, you're doing that I'm night. Doing the Hayden Hayden Orpheum sitting <laughs> screening. That's gonna be. It's gonna yeah. be. Uh, I mean, it's gonna be rough, but you know, it's just be a good time. I think. I mean, you'll enjoy it. Man. I'm. I can't sit in the chair for that long. I'm. I'm fat. I get uncomfortable. I mean, you know what? I might just take a blanket and a pillow, and I might just lie on the ground. <laughs> I'll oh, be yeah. okay with that. It would be a little uncomfortable, but I'll be okay with that. And how? Yeah, how, that's gonna be worse. Why would that be better? Because I, because I, I, at least I get to stretch my legs like for twelve hours. Is Orpheum um, Hoyt style seats? No. Well, I've never been there, and it's a super old retro cinema, and I, oh. I'm not going to expect that there's going to be super comfy chairs in there. <laughs> yeah, because you know what? I realize now, like event cinema. If 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 I'm not shelling out for Lux, I'm not going. Right. But you know, you know, like you I'm, know, like all the cinemas now, especially like Event and Hoyts, they all have Lazy Boys, like you know, recliners. No, 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 no. like, like that's the thing. Like I watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy three at Event uh, George Street, and they they were awful. Those seats were terrible. I was so uncomfortable. The recliners. So now I just no, they weren't oh. recliners. They were just like normal. Well, just seats. just, just like go to the, the cinema now. They're they're recliners. 
But that was Dynasty Final Fantasy 3. That was not that long event, ago. Event was really, really late in the game to put a club recliner seat in now. But now they have recliners in their cinemas. All of them? Like, all the cinemas? Yeah, I mean, I haven't sat in all their cinemas, but... but like, because like, I went to the cheap one, like, the cheap cinema, right? Because mm. the cheapest Hoyts are recliners. Yeah. And they've been since, like, 2016 yeah, or whatever, yeah. 2017. Hoyts yeah. did a good job at yeah. commissioning all those recliners in all their cinemas. Cause I was, I feel safe with them because I, I feel like that's like now a minimum requirement for yeah. me, recliner. And also, like, um, Event Cinema has these things called day beds, so it's right in the front row, where it's a little, literally oh, wow. a bed. <laughs> do, would you do that? Like, cause I, I would. I mean, I would row. do that for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the front row, though. I hate well, I think that's why row. they put the beds at the front row because they still want to try and find a way to pack out the cinema. So why not put beds in there? It's a good yeah. idea. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Anyway. Yeah. Um, let's right, bring this cool. to an end. Uh, thank you to the listener for jumping in to Logical Podcast, and we will see y'all again. <laughs> bye for now. Cool. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>